Welcome to the Asbury Park Vibes podcast. Asbury Park Vibes is dedicated to sharing information about the live music scene in the Asbury Park area, as well as the bands who have traveled through. We thank you for tuning in, downloading, or just stumbling upon our podcast. Please note that some of this episode's content may not be suitable for young listeners. Wow, that's a good gig. I, my job is to make it, to, to basically fuck it up and try to break it. Oh, see, I'd be good at that. I could oh, break that's anything. an amazing job, man. <laughs> if it's breakable, I can break it. Yeah, me too. I'm, <laughs> I'm awesome at breaking shit. This is Doug Drescher for Asbury Park Vibes. This is my little podcast heaven spot in the world called Seen and Heard. And our guest today is someone who, if you stepped anywhere in the circumference of Asbury Park, you have either seen him performing or heard his magical touch on the sound. Uh, And I'd like to welcome Jack Pitzker. Hey, Jack. Hey, good good evening, Doug. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, uh, for all of your friends who who you're going to get to listen to this, the, the first question I have to ask, the most obvious one, and, and forgive me for doing so, mm-hmm. where did the nickname Hinge come from? <laughs> well, I've, I've um, that question has come up quite often in my life. Um, and it goes back to one of my first bands, which was uh, Judas Priest cover band. Back um, in the very early, right around 1980, I um, I played in a band that started as a Doors cover band, and we turned into a Judas Priest cover band wearing spandex and everything. It was pretty... Uh, what, was that part of the covenant you made with the dark forces to go from the Doors to Judas Priest? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I sacrificed vials of blood for that one. And uh, so, you know, at the time, I was a pretty manic guitar player um you know one of the things about playing guitar for me is um it's very visceral and uh i have you know i don't don't really open my eyes when i play and keep my eyes closed and i feel it in my whole entire body and uh i was playing with this drummer um named russell and we were it was one of our first rehearsals together and he looked over at me and after we finished playing I don't know, maybe it was the Green Man Alishi or something like that. He looked over at me and he's like, man, 
He goes, you are, you're crazy, man. It, like, I don't know what's going on with your body, but it looks like you've got a series of hinges in your body. I've never <laughs> seen anybody's body move like that when they're playing guitar. And that's how it got started. And it's stuck ever since. Well, what's funny is, you know, in, if, for anyone who's seen you play, and, and I've, I've had the chance to see you play in both uh, the X-Men and Defiance Engine, I think probably more so in Defiance Engine, it does seem like you're wrestling with some of the demons inside as you, like, who's going to control this uh, guitar. And so I, I could see the, uh, the series of hinges wobbling back and forth. Yeah, it's so. a really detached thing for me. I'm not really there. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like, it's like another person. Sure, sure. And I'm kind of fighting with that person. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think, and sincerely, I, th I think when when you think of Asbury Park now, as opposed to say two or three years ago. But anyway, Asbury Park. You know, there, there's a certain group of people that pop up into your head as being essentially the DNA of Asbury Park. Uh, somebody like uh, Juicy Jen, Jen Hampton, who runs the Parlor Gallery, is it's just one of those people that when you think it, it, once you know about Asbury Park, you're like, mm -hmm. oh, that she's part of the DNA. And and when it comes to the Asbury Park music scene, I, I think you're very much one of those people. Uh, you know, with the bands you've been in and the sound that that you've done i mean you've you you've you worked at the saint for so many years uh making some very middling bands sound very important uh but let's let's rewind back did you did you grow up in the area yeah i did um actually my my earliest roots you know when i was just a little guy i lived in tom's river and uh you know asbury park was the destination as a kid in the 60s to go to um because it was like a wonderland. There was no, uh, you know, great adventure or anything like that. Disneyland was far, far away. You know, um, Asbury Park, when you were a kid in the 1960s, was the most exciting drive to take. And, uh, you know, I, I was... And in, that's, that's because of the boardwalk and... Oh, the, yeah, and the, the boardwalk, the The rides. characters, the, the, the weird people who lived around there. And the amazing architecture. I mean, it was a different place in the 60s. It was magic. It was clean and um, it was it was like a theme park in its own way. It still is now, but it's a different kind of theme park. But, uh, sure. you know, back then it was for me, a lot of it was the architecture. I've always I've always been a big fan of um, places that have a very strong character. And sure. Asbury had that character and especially Convention Hall. That building was like a magnet to me. And when I was a little kid, uh, I was actually in that, they used to have an Easter baby parade there. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they would, you'd be on stage. I think I was four years old, maybe. And, you know, you'd be on stage and they introduce all the babies and then they parade you down the boardwalk in your stroller. Oh, that's, that's, that is something that, it, it sounds like almost something out of like the Boardwalk Empire TV show of what they did at oh, the yeah. Jersey Shore back way back when. So you must have been really, you know, when you when you walk past is uh, is the the Paramount, uh, the architecture around that building is gorgeous. Oh yeah, and, and there was more than that there. You know, back in those days, there was another theater. It was a Lowe's, and it's. Um, kind of where lake house music is right now okay um in that area that whole entire block was this giant theater um i forget what it was called it was, um famous theater but it was done in an egyptian style oh that's they interesting used to go in there and it was surreal it was like 
I, it was the most opulent thing. And I remember going to see a movie there when I was a little kid. And it was just like, who cares about the movie? It was just like, I can't wait to go to the bathroom and get away from my parents so I can look around at this theater. And I think sure. they even had a premiere of the movie Bridge Over the River Kwai there. <laughs> and they built a bridge over Cookman Avenue. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, it was pretty, it was a big deal back then. Sure. Yeah. So... So you grow up near Asbury, you sense the magnetism of its sort of qualities. When did you discover that there was this instrument that you needed to have in your hands that was going to help you express yourself? Oh, man, that's that's a great question. Uh, okay, so um, eventually I lived in Edentown and I have a, you know, I've always joked that I feel like I have a speech impediment from growing up in Edentown that I don't see my T's. <laughs> So it sounds like Eden town. Eden town. <laughs> so I grew up there in this little ratty apartment in the Eden Crest apartments. And um, I'm like 16 years old. And my best friend, Greg Lemon, gets a guitar. And he starts listening to Neil Young and Bruce Springsteen. But he kind of sucked at playing guitar. And I would go over his house and I'd pick it up. And it was like... I knew I just knew how to play it. I don't know how else to explain it. So within it, it like made three, sense to you. Yeah, it made sense. So within three months, um, I got my my mom got me an acoustic guitar, and uh, then my next door neighbor had two electric guitars, and I borrowed them and never gave them back. Good job. And uh, so yeah. you were, so you were sixteen until you had picked up the instrument. Yeah. And, but, uh, but, but before that, were you were you still fascinated with music? Did you get oh, a sense yeah. that there was something there? I was in chorus, like vocal stuff in grammar school and high school. I loved to sing. Um, my parents, this is a critical moment in my life. I grew up in, you know, in that apartment in Edentown. They had a Victrola record player, a tube record player. And when I was about maybe eight years old, I had completely disassembled it and put it back together <laughs> because I was convinced I could make it sound better. And I would spend hours like playing with that thing. Like just, you know, I used to read popular science magazine, which was a big deal back then. And sure. You know, I, I was a real nerd when I was a little kid and uh, well, what, I love music. What music the Victrola played the 78s or did it play regular records? Regular well? records. So what, when you were a little kid, you know, when you close your eyes and think back about being seven and eight years old, what music were your parents playing on, on the tube record player? Elvis Presley, uh, Frank Sinatra. Um, there was this one album in particular that I listened to endlessly and in a weird way, it was sort of like the precursor to Cheech and Chong, but it was this guy named Alan Sherman. Of course. And he had this song called Hello Mudda, Hello Fada. Yep. And I listened to that over and over, that whole album. And it used to make me cry. Like, there's parts <laughs> of that song about going away to camp. And, sure. you know, so it was like crazy stuff like that. And uh, I can't remember exactly. Nat King Cole, there was like, you know, it was all the the hits of the fifties and sixties and sure. lots of records. So many of them. It's amazing how many people I talk to, you find out that their parents always had music playing. It's like oh, the yeah. first, the first seed of what eventually becomes an obsession. And any of us who are interested in music is planted by that soundtrack to us being five and six years old. 
Absolutely. That's amazing. So, so you, uh, so you graduated high school. Uh, when did you start playing in some kind of band? Was it the college years or did you go right to work? What, when did it become more of, Hey, look what I could do to, I want everyone to see what I can do. Well, um, it was before I graduated high school. I actually did not graduate with everybody else. I, when I turned, um, by the time I was 17, I was a full on guitar player. I went from being a straight A student to a pot smoking, long haired Jeff Spicoli um, <laughs> guitarist in the space of one year. So between junior and senior year in high school, Everything went to shit. Yeah, I, I don't think that lost my mind. Wasn't, that wasn't the transition your parents were hoping for. No, I, you know, I, I started watching Saturday Night Live and smoking weed in my parents' kitchen. And uh, so by the time I got to graduation time, I basically flunked history. So I had to go to summer school to. Uh, okay. But before that, let me um, let me digress a little. Please, please do. When I. When I started playing guitar, first thing that happened was I got this electric guitar that I borrowed for almost permanently from this guy. And it was a Sears Silvertone with an amp amplifier built into the case. Okay. And I, I was just like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. And I then managed to like acquire at Collingwood Auction, like a couple of amplifiers, like little piece of shit amplifiers. Sure. And I started going to a place in Red Bank called Red Bank Music, and I bought like one of the earliest digital delays. They actually existed in the in the seven, like around 1980. Now was and that a Rackmaster or was that a pedal? Yeah, and a Big Muff Pie. Yeah, the distortion pedal. And I would I would set this stuff in my bedroom up in in my bedroom in stereo, and basically blow the roof off of the apartment. And I sure. remember. Once my upstairs neighbor like came running down the stairs, he goes, "Oh my God! It sounds like like you're cracking the egg of the universe down there." <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I was like, way into like you know, so I'm like psychedelic kind of guy, and like you know, I, I just love sound. It didn't even have to be musical. Sure. And that big muff, the two pedals that everyone I've ever talked to, the first two pedals I ever got was the big muff. Yeah. That I think it was the electro harmonic small clone phaser. Yeah, I had that too. It had one switch and it made one effect, and it was either, you know, it's either subtle or super not subtle. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I was way into it, and then eventually, you know, so this is also the era of Led Zeppelin, so I got these like dragon, like kimono shit. You know, I look, you know, I had, I had to look. <laughs> And everything. Please tell me you have photographs of that somewhere. I don't. I, I don't have any <laughs> photographs except for me as a baby. But uh, I, I would give these concerts on my porch, and I would, you know, I would create this bullshit story. But I would, I, you know, I'd be on my porch in the apartment complex, and the kids from the neighborhood would come around and sit on their little lawn chairs or on the grass. Oh, that's and fascinating. Just, yeah, and I just, you know, I, I love putting on shows. I even put on puppet shows. I did all sorts of stuff. Where I was a magician. What was your parents' response to this sudden sort of move to the post-Woodstock era in American music? Well, you know, um, unfortunately, at that time, my parents' health was failing. Okay. And I was raised by my mom and my aunt. My dad was never in the picture, and... uh they they basically just um, let me go. You know, mm -hmm. they, they, I, I at some point I used to refer to as raised by wolves. Like 
they just sort of tossed me out into the world and they encouraged everything that I did. But they kind of were hands-off parents. And uh, they got to the point where they had various things going on in their lives. And basically all they could do was um, watch TV. And they kind of okay. drifted away. But, uh, you know... They, so you, you carved out your own niche. I carved out my own niche. And, uh, you know, I started telling my friends, yeah, one day I'm going to play in Madison Square Garden, just like every other kid. Sure. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, that was where it all got started for me. And then there was a critical moment that happened for me. And it's not, it, it's, it, it actually brings us back to Asbury Park. And this is what happens. Me and my friend Greg Lemon, it's 1978 or so. And, you know, we're now old enough to go. See, we have driver's licenses. We're old enough to go to see a rock concert. And, you know, we're, we, our, so my first concert is the Charlie Daniels Band. How unfortunate. Yeah. At the convention <laughs> hall with this guy named Michael Stanley open, opening, who I believe just passed away last week. And so we get there and it's a haze of pot smoke and, but you know, this gin, this crazy vibe. And I, it was just like intoxicating that first concert. And I go through the doors of convention hall and I'm really there to see Charlie Daniels band. And, you know, like, I have no idea what this is going to be like. But as I'm walking in, there's this thing that looks like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise at the back of the room. Mm. And it's the mixing board. Sure. And I couldn't take my eyes off it. I was like, man, it's like, I don't know what's going on there. But whatever that guy's doing, I want to do that. Like, sure. I, I, I was more blown away by the guy that was at the back of the room than the band. I was like, man, and I had no idea that it was going to be that loud or that powerful. Sure, but what but could be cooler than a, a thing the size of a small truck with thousands of little knobs? Yeah, nothing like what we have today, you know. Right. <laughs> but it, that, that's where that was a jumping-off point for me, for sure. So then, so I'm sure Charlie Daniels put on a good show because they're professionals, and the sound was good enough to impress you. So shoot forward a few years. Uh, what was the first paying gig that you played in and what band were you in and what were you doing? Okay, so <laughs> I was in a band called Flight and we were this Doors cover band and um, it was me, my cousin and this third guy who kind of wore these giant fluffy boots and he looked like Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac in the seventies. Uh -huh. And we did like doors cover band cover songs and Rolling Stones and Santana and stuff like that. And we did a gig in Union Beach on this at this little dive bar. I want to say it was called the Tally Ho Inn, but I really don't know, but the stage was the size of a, of a postage stamp. Mm -hmm. And that was my first gig and uh i felt like the king of the world I, you know and there was just it was like an old man bar they hated mm -hmm. this but my second gig was at a place in red bank that was called toad hall okay and it was on french street i think it's a gold it's like a gym now or something like that for a while there it was like this um dance club it's been a lot of things but that show 
was like the one that really took it to because people loved us. See, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know what happened that night, but like we felt like rock stars that night. And uh, that's an intoxicating feeling. Oh my God. I was like laying on my back playing guitar. I was a ma maniac, you know? Oh, that, that's absolutely funny. Um, I guess my question, if we pause there for a second, uh, at that time in Asbury Park, like you were, you were in a cover band, there was a lot of things going on. Was Springsteen as big an Asbury Park connection as, as it seems now that he's inextricably connected to the city? Or what, yeah. what was it like then? That's a, that's a really interesting question because, and I may get some flack for this, so I apologize to anybody who's offended by this, but no. He wasn't like, I know there was this diehard group of people that was all about Bruce Springsteen, but they were like, um, it, it, at that time, I think he was just a kid, just like me playing at like different places. But personally, there was a, there was a whole other thing going on in Asbury park at the same thing. And it was a cover band scene. Okay. So was that because you know, it was a shore like resort town and people just wanted to go out and see cover bands or, well, you know, if you, there's a great documentary, if you ever want to learn about the, the history of it, and it's about the band twisted sister mm -hmm. and they talk about what it was like growing up in the Jersey shore cover band scene, a Jersey shore, long Island, New York, you know, so all the venues in Asbury, Asbury was actually a cover band place in the late seventies. Okay. And there's also a slight underground punk scene, but we'll probably talk about that later. But so Stone Pony was just, a, you know, like they didn't have like a lot of original bands. then. it was like bands like Twisted Sister. There was another one that was my all time favorite. They're called Phantoms Opera. Mm -hmm. And that band um, had this. They, they played a lot of like uh, Queen and Judas Priest and early Rush and like and they were freaking amazing. The 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 drum, the bass player went on to be in Bon Jovi. The guitar player went on to be in this band called TT Quick. I remember hearing advertisements for them on AM radio. Yeah, so they were a big deal. And there was another band called White Tiger, which was like a Led Zeppelin cover band. Uh, there was the Nerds. They were they were around way back then doing early new wave. Was um. Was Rat around at that time? Oh, I, yeah. No, there was a band called The Good Rats. The Good Rats, that's it. They, okay. were, they, they had this great guitar player named Pepe Marcello. Yeah. And he was like a guitar god. He was like the guitar god of the cover band scene. Yeah. So that's what it was. Asbury Park was the place to go see that kind of stuff. It's funny. I remember 78, 79. So in 78, I was 14. Mm -hmm. But my sister was 10 years older than me. And we, we lived up in North Jersey in Oakland, right on the New York state border. But she would talk about driving down to the fast lane to see some guy named Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And that's, that's my earliest recollection of hearing his name being associated with Asbury park. Yeah. I think, you know, I think my head was in another place. Like I was sure. more into the theatrical rock stuff, you know? So, but what's funny is if, if, if you talk about Asbury Park now, and and you, and I guess a couple of years ago they did that reunion of all the people who played at the Upstage Club, mm -hmm. it, it really did make it sound like 
all of and, and not not to their detriment because you know look at the the music they've produced or at least if you like that music but it did make it sound like predominantly it was bruce springsteen and that cadre of people all playing in different permutations in all of the clubs in asbury you know i'm gonna have to check out the twisted sister one because obviously there was another uh road of music being played in asbury that you don't hear about too much now yeah anyway. that's the, that's one of the things like i always thought it was like i think it, for me personally I eventually got sick of hearing about Bruce Springsteen and Asbury <laughs> Park. It, I, I think there's a lot of people will say the same thing. You know, I love Bruce Springsteen, though. I, 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 he actually played with my band, the X-Men, once in Asbury Park at a club called T-Birds Cafe. He joined us. We were good friends with him, actually. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, uh, he, you know, he, we, we hung out with him all the time. We had a manager that he was he, we had a manager that was connected to him oh that's very cool See, and, a... uh, but yeah you know um i mean at the time there were there was something for everybody in music there was even a you know the west side had a whole different scene that we never really heard about but uh you know and the thing you just said about a whole country of musicians it's funny because it's sort of like that now too you know, it, it that's one of the like things is that cross-pollination of musicians never stop because it is, you know, it, it's still the de facto New Jersey hotspot for music. Sure. And it, I, I would think we could, I mean, if we wanted to invest the time, we could name 20 people we know who play in Asbury who are in at least four different bands with oh, each yeah. other. Yeah. And that's, that's very cool. And, and I like that. Yeah. So, so you get a little bit older. Obviously, you're probably living on your own. Yeah. When did you move from, you know, uh, the Judas Priest, you know, rock and roll forever, you know, thing to something more original? And then what eventually turns in to a much more post-punk heavy sound that I know you as uh, performing? When was the transition into something a little different well what happened for me was you know that 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 whole like um judas priest cover thing fizzled out and you know everybody was had real jobs and you know it just got a little old really quick and i <laughs> i got bored with it because i was i never to this day i i don't really stick with i don't listen to a lot of music that i listened to when i was a kid i'm always looking for new stuff mm-hmm and uh you know i just wanted i wanted something different and i think what happened for me was i um i knew i could probably play heavier music i really liked um i loved queen like queen like listening to brian may like the way he did and i, I wanted to do something more out there mm -hmm. you know and so one day i was looking in this uh, what what used to, the, the aquarian it was you know i think it's the east coast rocker it, now. It, be, it was the east coast rocker i think it went back to being the aquarian at some point yeah and there was an ad in there for a band in red bank and they they said metal band looking for guitarist you know rhythm and lead okay and i was like all right yeah sure cool you know and um i didn't really have a car at the time i was i was an avid bicyclist and I, you know I, I had no idea what i was getting myself into and i managed to get a ride to red bank with my guitar and my amp 
And uh, I go into this dingy basement with these four other guys. And uh, they start playing this music and it sounds like Motorhead. It's like, you know, like they played these, these things. I was just like, all right, show me a couple of songs. I was just like, whoa, man, this is freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. And they're like, all right, let's teach you a song. And that was it. Like, it was heavy and it was early thrash metal, really, but with a punk edge. And, uh, you know, we had a singer, his name was Scott Ruth. He went on to be in a band called um, Ripping Corpse, which was a big deal. They actually had some success and did mock like uh, they got connected with people from the band Morbid Angel, which was a big Florida death metal band. Mm-hmm. So it was really dark. It was like heavy, 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 heavy. And we were just excited. We could not, you know, and we started playing at the Brighton Bar. And at the time, like 1981, 82, the Brighton Bar was the place to be. The scene sure. there was insane. It was like now, was, little... was Greg affiliated with the Brighton Bar back then? No, the Brighton Bar was run by a guy named Big John. Okay, and just this big burly guy, and he it was just a free for all there. But you know, they had a really great PA, and it welcomed. It was like that's where Monster Magnet came from. Um, so many seminal bands came out of that place. Um, you know, there was a band called Shrapnel, which um, gave birth to, like, Monster Magnet in a way, and this guy named Danny Ray, who got connected with the Ramones. And sure. It was the place to play. And uh, we just happened to become one of those at-the-moment bands. Like, we had our moment now, in the what, what was What was the name of that band that you were playing in? The Beast. The Beast. See, now, what's interesting about the Brighton, because by 83... 84, I'm in college and I'm in a band. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about it, 83, 84, 85, it, it just wasn't any place to play for original music. You right. had to go somehow get into New York City. Uh, and then when the Brighton came up back then from Oakland, New Jersey, driving to the Brighton would be like the equivalent of driving to Canada now. It seems yeah. so far away. And if I'm not mistaken, every week the Whirling Dervishes were playing at the Brighton. Yeah. Too. It seemed yeah, like they the were always at the Brighton. Amazing band. Yeah. So, so you're playing at the Brighton. It's gritty. It's greasy. It's dark. And they do have a great sound system. And the Brighton City Gardens. Oh, so you uh, played at City Gardens as well. Yes. Yeah, CBGBs. You know, we played there a, million, a whole bunch of times. Uh, you know, it was amazing. It was it was an amazing time to be a young musician, for sure. Sure. So, and what happened to the Beast? Well, uh, <laughs> we got signed. We went from a local record company called Mother Records, which put out a lot of great punk stuff that sure. now sells on eBay for thousands of dollars. Yes. Uh, Greg's original band, Chronic Sick. You know, they were a hot ticket on eBay. I I was I've kidded with him. And he said that if he'd known it was going to be worth so much money, he would have saved a couple of the records himself. Yeah. And we all did that. That's the crazy thing. We had no idea that we were going to be something someday, you know. But, <laughs> uh, so um, what was I saying? I, I just So, so you, 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 first off, to be associated with Mother Records is cool in and of itself. And if you, oh, that's, yeah. if so, you had done nothing else, I would have been like, Jack is so cool because he was there. Yeah. Well, we went from Mother Records and we put out an EP 
And uh, I should have known that we were in for trouble because we went up to this place uh, up in Milford, New Jersey, and recorded it. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, Mark, the mother Chelsea put up the money and we went up to this place and we recorded this four song thing, which uh, I still listen to every once in a while. It's on, you can find the songs from it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And uh, while we were there, the guitar, other guitar player busted out this giant, when I was about to do a guitar solo for something, he busted out this giant line of crystal meth. Oh no. And I had never touched that particular drug and I did it and I almost died. I wanted to die. I remember like puking for days after that. It was the worst thing ever, but I should have known that like there was something else going on in this band that I didn't know about. Yeah. So what had happened is we had gone for that, that EP got us some attention. And then we heard about this place called rock and roll heaven at a flea market on route 18 in New Brunswick run by this guy named Johnny Z and they had just signed Metallica who were just a baby band at the time. Mm-hmm. We're like, Oh, we got to go see this guy, Johnny Z. And we brought him that. He's like, Whoa, the beast is fucking amazing. You know, <laughs> like this big burly guy. He's like, fucking, I'm, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm going to sign you. So we signed a, a contract with them and we recorded an album and we thought we were going to be the biggest shit ever. Like, so we're hanging out with Metallica in this place called the, the um, metal militia house <laughs> in um, Old Bridge, and uh, you know everybody from Scott Ian is hanging out there. Um, what's that band from Canada that they made the documentary about? The Troubled Band. Oh, I don't was, know. Oh God, what they were they called? Uh, I can't remember. It'll probably pop in at the end of this uh, discussion. But there were all these musicians there that went out to be legends. Sure. And we were in this sweaty basement, and we we played for them. And, like, I remember being covered in sweat, and, like, steam was coming off my body. And all the guys in Metallica at the time were standing right in front of me, giving me, like, the devil horn, like, you know, sure. the, the Dio thing. And I was just like, whoa, man, I, I didn't know who they were. Like, they were just a bunch of guys drinking beers with us in a basement. Sure. And so, you know, we had our moment in the sun. We played with Anthrax. We we took, we took did shows with Slayer. Um, we, we, were, we were about to, something was about to happen. And there was an undercurrent of drugs and alcohol in the, in the band. Uh, coke and other things and I was really just a mere pothead at the time I didn't really get into any heavy drugs Mm -hmm. but then one day they they said you know there was other bands like the Scorpions you know and bands with three guitar players they're like you know we're amazing with two what if we added a third one and I said well no we got this far with just me and the other guy sure I said, I don't want to have another guitar player I like just the two of us we're perfect together and they're like they wanted that they wanted that April wine triple guitar threat. Yeah. <laughs> Molly Hatchet. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, you know, I'm not really down with this. I, I think that our simplicity is the key to why we got this far. And I don't think we should get like all crazy. And they're like, well, we had a meeting and we decided that we were going to do this anyhow. And I was like, all right, fine. I quit. Aw. And... Within a year, the band fell apart and um, drugs took its toll. Some people went to jail. Some people never recovered from it. 
Sad you know, there, sure. uh, it was tragic because I think we we had a golden ticket and we we wasted it. Well, that's what you know. One of the questions that comes up in my head when when you talk about musicians who who were close, they mm-hmm. were there, is ultimately at that moment, what was the biggest difference between the Beast and Metallica? You're both in the same crappy basement. You're both making music on all thirty two cylinders. You both have label interest. And it's almost like one band doesn't succumb to their addictions as quickly as the other band. And it's almost like the last band standing gets gets the uh, the gold cup. Yeah. And we weren't as good as Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, 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 we didn't have we had more like punk rock vocals. We didn't yeah. have as good vocals, you know. So when you saw Metallica or, or even any of those other bands, did you sense that there was that extra sparkle in them that they were going to be big? Yeah, like, uh, especially seeing, you know, like playing with Anthrax, not so much, I actually never saw Metallica play back then. Uh-huh. I, I did tour with them. I did a bunch of shows with them when I was doing sound for Monster Magnet, you know, in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was mostly like Anthrax, like seeing them at this place in um, South River called Union Jacks. There was this like club that played a lot I of metal. name, yeah. And, you know, we go in there, we've got our crappy little amplifiers, and they've got, like, walls of marshals. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that, you know, it's like, if we had that, we'd probably be... So-. And then, like, playing at Lamore with Slayer, and I go on stage there with a little 212 Yamaha solid-state amp, and they have, like, 40 freaking Marshall cabinets and upside-down crosses behind the drum set. Sure. And I was like, yeah... <laughs> You know, it's funny. One of the most disappointing aspects of being a music photographer was at one of the first big festivals I took pictures at and I got to go backstage mm-hmm. and and I, I'm always fascinated by the gear and the equipment. And I try to take a picture of the pedal board to see what the guy's playing and to realize that, you know, the guy's got 12, 13, 14 stacks of amps. And when you go back, all but one of them are completely empty. Exactly. <laughs> and there's like one speaker or better yet, the whole thing is empty. And in the back line, there's like a Fender twin with a microphone and a special box or a JC 120. Oh, yeah. And the guy's doing everything through the thing on the side of the stage. Yep. I've seen it a million times. It's amazing. Well, it's, it's like sometimes you don't want to know how the soup's being made. I want the mystery. And, yeah. and when the sheen rubs off, you're just like, oh, the whole thing's a joke. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's better before you meet the guy behind the curtain. Sure. So, so the beast, you go your own way. And then what did you decide to do? Um, I didn't decide, you know, it's funny. I was, um, I was despondent for a while and, um, I went out to dinner one day in Red Bank to a really awesome Italian restaurant and Greg Gorey, also known as Greg Macalino, the owner of the Brayden and lead singer of the band, the chronic sick, uh, had this band, the X-Men, and he was sitting in the booth next to me. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, Hinge, you know, we knew each other from our various bands. And he's like, what have you been doing? I was like, oh, you know, I quit the Beast. And he, and we started talking. He's like, well, you know, like the, the guitar player from our band is about to quit. So why don't you join us? And that I joined the X-Men. Oh, I didn't realize the X-Men go that far back. Yeah, we, we've been together since around... I want to say 1984. 
So what is it? You only play one gig every three years just Maryland, to make it easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we had a moment, you know, the, the, we, we, um, you know, we started out as just like a really super fast raw punk band, sloppy, raw, gross punk band. And eventually we, you know, you remember the band Tesla? Yes. And they started doing their acoustic stuff and it was like MTV unplugged and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had this manager who was affiliated with Bruce Springsteen named Obi, and she kind of groomed us to be that kind of band. I, I couldn't see you with that, uh, the acoustic, that plastic ovation that sits on its own stand doing like a prick of, what's that, the cut of the rose or something and seeing Every Greg rose has it. its yeah. 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 That's just well, not we, an image I want to think of. We did songs by the Kinks and the Hollies and stuff like that, and our own songs done in the style of the MTV Unplugged. Yeah. But we also did shows with John Eddy. Okay. And that's when, I, you know, for a while, that's when everything fell apart because I was like, this is not punk rock. You know, I was like, I actually quit the band then, too. <laughs> now, back then, were you were you also sharing the stage with bands like Kraut and, and Reagan Youth and part of the New York <laughs> punk scene? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like um, we were, we played with Johnny Thunders a couple of times at City Gardens. Um, you know, whatever whatever was big. We one of the things that in, in Asbury Park that is often forgot about the music scene there is there's a rehearsal place there called the Hot Dog House, mm -hmm. and the Hot Dog House originally was the quintessential underground punk rock club where there was this big like gymnasium style room there and it would be filled with 300, 500 skinheads <laughs> watching bands like um, Youth of Today and all those bands. Like It was like the sickest place to play, the sweatiest, slam danciest, just like get your shit beat up kind of place to play. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh you know, at the same time, we had the, you know, right after that, we had this other side. We were playing with Blondie and all this stuff. You know, it was mm. crazy. It was, it was just nuts. And, uh, you know, that went on for a long time. And then I got, I got like angry at the direction we were headed in. I thought we were, you know, going way off into some other realm that I didn't like. And I left the ba that band as well. And, and so what, what year does that put us at? That's around 1988. And then the biggest like series of events in my music career happened that changed everything. So and this, is, really this is important. So, so, so you leave the X-Men, hopefully you left on good terms. Cause you know, those guys were all pretty cool. And yes. even the members of the X-Men, I mean, the, the, the other members that they're in like 12,000 other bands as well. It's like, oh, yeah. like you only need to bring one drum kit. You could have seven bands play. Yeah. We so, actually did a U.S. tour. Um, who did you tour with? As, we, as we, were on, we were on the, this label called buy our records. I remember that as well too. Yeah. And there was a, a, a band called raging slab. And uh -huh. um, there was a lot of like, there's a bunch of bands that were really famous from that. Mm -hmm. And we actually did a U.S. tour with the band DOA. Okay. Canadian punk rock band. And they had a big school bus and we had a crappy van and we traveled. <laughs> it wasn't U.S. It was East Coast. Yeah. But it was like three weeks and we went from here all the way to New Orleans and the end of Florida and back. And was, and there, was, like, was there an audience for what you were doing? Oh, yeah. It was amazing, man. We loved it. We, 
we played with this band called Gut Bank and this band called the Rhythm Pigs. And it was the most magic three weeks break. We were in this crappy van. I bought it for $500. And it was like, I mean, I can close my eyes and remember every single day of that tour. It was like the greatest thing ever. You know, I was like, this is my life. This is going to be the rest of my life. So at that point, you thought this was going to bring you somewhere and then you were going to, that's what you were going to do. Yeah, that was before our MTV Unplugged era. <laughs> I wish we could have stayed right there because it was magic. Sure. Uh, so that comes to an end. And then what happens that changes the course of where you were about to land? Well, at the same time, I was way into doing sound. And I was only the sound guy at the Brighton Bar. Um, you know, my, that first band, Flight, we had our own PA system. And nobody knew how to use it. So I taught myself. So I also became the sound guy. Mm-hmm. And I was I loved sound just as much as I loved playing guitar, and so I was like the sound guy at the Brayden Bar, loving every minute of it. I did sound for Monster Magnets first show. And, yeah, I was going to say you probably did sound for a lot of up and coming bands that were coming through. Oh yeah, and like bands like the Descendants and all, and you know, like all these really awesome bands back then. And uh, I loved every minute of it. It was like I was doing sound at the Pier Pub in Long Branch. That was on the fishing pier where the Haunted Mansion was. Uh-huh. Um, this, this place called the Green Parrot in Neptune, which was an amazing place where a who's who of bands played, ranging from Lenny Kravitz to but you I stayed, think Nine Inch Nails even played there. This place was amazing. But you stayed generally around the central... Yeah, area. right around the Jersey area. Mostly, you know, Long Branch... There's a little bit in um, Asbury. I was doing sound at the fast lane occasionally. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy on the scene. His name was Gunter Ford. He's still around. He was um, a manager. He was the guy that um, actually helped Metallica get their first record deal. Mm-hmm. I went way back with this guy. And uh, he had this this death metal band I mentioned earlier from Florida called Morbid Angel. Mm-hmm. And they were playing a gig at the Ritz in New York City, City, which also is Studio Fifty Four. That now that's a big gig, or or is that, or was that at the time where the bands were paying to play at places like that? Oh no, they were a big band. Okay, they, they were like the first of the big American death metal bands. Okay, and uh, he's like, Hinge, I got. He calls me up. He's like, I got two thoughts for you. Because one is, I think you could be sound guy for this band morbid angel i'm scared shitless because i'm like where are they playing he's like the ritz and i had been going to the ritz to see like husker do and soul asylum and living color mm-hmm. and i was like this is a two thousand person capacity place i'm like i you know but i was you know me being the overconfident guy i was i was like yeah okay i can do it sure you know sure. and it coincidentally it was the same that Nirvana came out with um, Smells Like Teen Spirit the first time it was played on the radio. Mm-hmm. I heard it driving back from that gig. That's another story. But uh, so uh, he's like, and here's the other thing. He's like, if that doesn't work out, I've got this other band called Mucky Pup, and you could either be their sound guy or their guitar player. They're looking for both. Okay. And I was like, all right. So I went and did this, this gig with Morbid Angel. It was awesome. I think I did a pretty good job, drove home, 
Uh, WNEW is like, okay, it's Scott Muni. He's like, this is Scott Muni. Sure. going to play a new song by this new artist. It's going to, you're not going to believe this. You've never heard anything like it. And he played Smells Like Teen Spirit. And then he's like, whoa, you know what? I've never done this before. I'm going to play it again. He played twice in a row. Did it, did it affect you the same way it did? Oh, God, I mean, it sounds cliche, but when you heard that sound, it was just like it went right through your soul, like mm-hmm. his vo- voice and the just the rawness of it. It was like on regular, you know, plus going through FM radio, it just sounded so. And that, that was dub- that would have been WNEW. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty out there Were the oh, so they weren't on Sub Pop at the time. So they had already been signed for that. That was their that was their second, I guess, official album. But that's yeah. pretty that's pretty risky uh for any w to play when they're playing journey and led zeppelin yeah and yet you still know what happened next you know they became the biggest band in the world yeah you know and uh so i drive home and i you know I, and i'm just like whoa this is this is like 19 whatever year that is 88 89 90 i'm not sure it's all mm-hmm. blur and you know so I think Morbid Angel, you know, that we had a good time, but I might have been too normal for them. They were like, <laughs> you know, they were not my cup of tea either. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. I want you to, I'm going to send you a cassette. And I want you to learn this album. It's called Boy in a Man's World. And it's this band, Mucky Pup. Maybe you heard of them. And I remember seeing their name on the marquee at the Stone Pony many times. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I heard of them. Like, I, I remember hearing them on the radio. I'm like, wow, okay, like, sure. I'm, you know, I'm going to... That just real quick, the, the music of the Jersey Shore and the bands there, what was what was the local radio station or college station at the time where you would hear that? WHTG. Yeah, that was the that station was the radio station. That's all I listened to. Yeah. You know, and also WSOU. Uh, that was out of Seton Hall. Okay, uh, yeah, that was North Jersey somewhere. Also, I think there was Seton a radio Hall still has Rutgers. Seton Hall still has a big heavy metal uh, music thing, and definitely the music scene out of Rutgers. I mean, there's a whole book to be written about the uh, uh, the Court Tavern. And, oh yeah, we played the there all the time too. Yeah, and the I I love I love playing at the Court Tavern. I love the sound system there. Yeah, another one was called the Showplace, and that's up in uh, Dover. Dover, yeah, yeah, yep. Uh, yeah, so, so, you, so you picked to be the guitar player, Mucky Pup, and where did it take you? Well, I got the cassette, and I, I at first I was like, "This is so simple. Like, this is below me. I mean, this is what an asshole I was, right?" Mm-hmm. I listened to it, and it's like there's this song called "Hippies Hate Water," right? It's like dun 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 dun, dun. and I'm like. You know, like I was all like, uh, you know, I could do this stuff in my sleep. It was so simple, you know, and uh, I had no idea that they were one of those bands that's big in Europe, but not so big in America. Mm-hmm. So I went up there and I, at the time I was going through maybe what you would call my goth era. OK, you know, I, I had this like gothy kind of look. I had this jet long trench coat with skulls on the inside. And, you know, I had slicked back hair with a ponytail. I kind of looked like a vampire. And, and are those where the pictures of you playing in Europe come from that I've seen on uh, Facebook of you uh, yeah. once in a while? 
Yeah. And I walk in and these guys are wearing like baseball hats and like Michael Jordan, you know, jerseys and sweats or like shorts. Like, and I'm looking like some, you know, goth guy. And mm -hmm. they just looked at me like, what the fuck is this guy doing, you know? And I auditioned and the guy, they were like, whoa, you know, they were, they liked me and we liked each other. Mm -hmm. And they called me back for a second audition. And this time I went like dressed like, my, you know, where they, I, I, I dressed to look like them. Like you were going to the mall. Like I was going to the mall. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then they're like, okay, we'll give you a call. And then like three days later, the guy calls him up. He goes, all right, so here's the deal. Um, we talked about it and we made a decision and he's like, he's like dragging it out. And I'm just like, just get to the point. You know, <laughs> he's like, here's what we're going to do. We, we really like this other guy, Eric. And we really liked you. So we're going to go to Europe with you and Eric, and we're going to have two guitar players instead of one. Okay. Well, and I was like, whoa, okay. Just and what you wanted like, to hear. Yeah. And he's like, our first gig is at Studio One in Newark. And it happened to be on my 29th birthday, I think it was. And he goes, and then the next day we're flying to Europe for three months. And I'm like, holy shit. You're like, you know, there's, there's like, so get a passport and get ready because, you know, you're going to be going to Europe and, you know, and we're going to pay you $150 a week. But Jack, I got to say, so you go to Europe at 30. At that point, you're starting to tip the scales of being the older guy in the room. Oh, yeah. I went from being the youngest guy to the oldest guy in the room. And so, so you, I mean, talk about a dream come true for a kid who wanted to be a rock god. So you toured yeah. Europe. And what year would that have been? I want to say it was either 1990 or 1991. Okay, so you toured Europe. It, it, uh, if I remember the early 90s, it wasn't the best time economically in Europe. What oh, was but it, it was magic because the music scene was amazing there. and We were like rock stars. Our first show with me, they had already been there many times. Mm -hmm. And my first show was in Paris. And uh, I think there was maybe 2,000 people there. And I uh, That must have been it. amazing. And, uh, you know, we were big in Holland, we were big in Germany. And, uh, you know, the first time we went, we traveled in this like kind of modified camper van thing. But the next time we went back, we, we um, went with this band that was the number one band in the UK called Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine. They were a huge deal. They were like the biggest band in Europe at the time. Yeah. And we went from the shitty little van to the giant double decker tour bus. Oh, that must be fantastic. Yeah, and that was it. And, you know, I did that for a couple of years. And then I had one of my, some, I don't know what happened to me. I, I had some kind of existential meltdown. Well, you, you seem to have this cycle of, I've done this for a few years and I'm done doing this. Yeah, they, they were kind of, I'll be honest, they were kind of assholes to me. Oh, no. Okay. And, uh, you know, we, I mean, I didn't really like how I was treated. I think I was, I made fun of a lot behind my back and I was kind of the goof. I was like the, um, I was kind of like the brunt of a lot of jokes that I wasn't in on. Oh, that's not cool. And, you know, it just kind of fell apart. And the band was really the the singer and his brother, um, his brother, the drummer. Okay. And we were just hired musicians. So 
you know, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I'm sure I fucked that up. And so when did, I, you know, when did the mucky pup thing sort of come to its natural end for you? Uh, maybe around late night. It was, I think I, you know, we did a bunch of U.S. tours, a European tour, and then we drifted apart for a couple of years. And I, I, I then went to my next thing, which was becoming the sound guy for Mucky Pup. Okay. And that was amazing. Did sound for them on a tour. And uh, that's where I really honed my skills. And I came home and uh, then we recorded, then I recorded an album with them. I, I actually came home and I started um, uh, composing music for a theater group that did an amazing thing on, As on the Asbury Boardwalk once upon a time. Mm-hmm. Actually, that might have been just, I'm a little blurry at what point that occurred, but, uh, you know, I recorded this album with Mucky Pup and it kind of floundered. We did a couple of European tours and a U.S. tour with the band, the Dickies. I know that. Now, let me ask. So for the most part, most of your experience in sound has been for live sound. Was it hard to make the transition into being into a recording studio as an engineer? I hated. No, I never was worked in the recording studio. I hated okay. the recording studio. Absolutely hated it. Okay. So you I like doing a live too. piece. Yeah. I, I, but that would, that would, I mean, given a, a rational sense of the world, that would seem like the most natural thing for you to sort of drift into as you get a little bit older, you become associated with a recording studio, but you're a live sound guy. Yeah. I need, I need to like listening to more a song more than once in a row. That's what, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I, I didn't like, I like the immediacy of live sound. I didn't like the meticulousness of going over things over and over. And I, and I also, I hated like as a musician, like recording with headphones. Um, I just didn't like the vibe. I, I, but as a musician, what was it like when you went on tour in Europe and you play a bunch of dates, you essentially have to play the same song over and over again. And, and, and in many ways, you sort of become a cover band of your own music. Well, when there's a thousand people singing the songs back at you. That helps out a little bit. It helps out a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was exciting, man. And, you know, I was way into travel, man, like... You know, it was like a dream come true. I always thought of it as like I got the gold. I finally got that golden ticket. Well, my my friends and I in, in undergraduate school, we'd talk about getting in the van and driving across the country. I never I did. I was never brave enough to do that. But my friends who've done that, you know, they list those things in the top 10 accomplishments of, of their personal life of being the guy that got in the van and they played in every little college town and they kept notebooks and have photographs. And, you know, I, I didn't have the balls to do that. I didn't know how to leave home at the time. Mm. So mucky pup fizzles out. You're the sound guy. So that brings us closer to the turn of the century. A little at a time. Yeah. What was, what was the hinge doing there? Well, um, so I had already spent like about four four and a half years in Europe, mostly, you know, from whatever it was, 1990 to about 1994, 19, early 1995. And I had this friend who was the sound guy for the band, no doubt. He originally was the sound guy for Monster Magnet. Mm -hmm. And he was my next door neighbor. And he gets this call from a band and they're like, we're looking for a sound guy. And he couldn't do it because he was out with no doubt. He's like, well, I got this friend named hinge 
who would probably be perfect for you. And he's like, used to be in a span called Mucky Pup. And they're like, Mucky Pup, that's just one of our influences. Okay. So they asked me to send them a resume and I make up some bullshit. And at the very bottom, I wrote, basically, I'm the king. Right. Okay. And I send it off to him and I get a call like literally the next day from the guitar player. And it's this band called the Bloodhound Gang. Okay. And this is 1995. And they have a hit single called Firewater Burn. It's all over the radio. So it's like their take on the roof, the roof. Okay. And the funny thing is, before I knew about this, I heard that on the radio. And I was like, you know, somehow I bet you I'm going to wind up working for this band someday. I swear (laughs) to God, I heard it. And I was like, it was it was instantly catchy to me. And I just knew there was something there. It was like a God moment of some kind. Sure. So the guy calls me up. He goes, all right, you're in. And I go out to Royersford, PA, and I meet these guys. And they're playing kind of like Bucky Pup music. It's like deadpan, funny, sometimes punk, sometimes rap and hip hop music. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, we're in Republic Records. We just got this hit album. You know, they had a connection with Howard Stern. And they're like, we're going on a, a U.S. tour with Iggy Pop and Sponge. And uh, that's got to be a cool tour. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and they're like, so you're in. And that was it. Like, and then I spent from whatever that was to 1995 up to the year 2000 mostly with mucky um bloodhound gang now, you the make, world and bloodhound gang took me everywhere do you make enough money to pay the rent doing this well with bloodhound gang i did not the other bands but yeah. bloodhound gang i was making a lot of money okay i was making a shitload of money and uh you know we 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 got so big eventually that there was a band bus and a crew bus okay and we were sponsored by Jägermeister. We used to travel around the U.S. in a tour bus that was that had like the that was wrapped in Jägermeister, so it looked like a giant <laughs> Jägermeister bottle. And uh, they came out with a second album. There, I, there was a period in between albums for them when I did sound for Monster Magnet all across the planet for a year, also. So and you, that was you've done a lot for, of traveling as as a sound guy. You, it sounds like you've done more traveling as a sound guy than you did as a guitar guy. Absolutely, and it changed my life. And uh, you know that year with Monster Magnet, it was with um, Aerosmith, Marilyn Manson, Van wow. Halen, okay, uh, uh, Rob Zombie. You know, doing arenas like I didn't get to do sound in Madison Square Garden, but I did sound in the Meadowlands and. And they just let you behind the big mixer and say, have at it? Oh, yeah. I was good by then. <laughs> I, I would be so scared. I'd touch the wrong oh, line. I, I never felt nervous about it. I was, I was very confident back then. Yeah. I was like, eh. you know, I, after the years with Bloodhound Gang and playing in arenas, and sometimes we did shows for 250,000 people. Wow. In Europe, like festivals. And I was just like, Ugh. You know, I was uh, I was like at the apex of my confidence then, and mm-hmm. uh, so I, I got fired from Monster Magnet because I turned into a big drug addict. Ah, yeah, whatever, it happens, you know. Well, it, it's, and, uh, it seems to be. I don't know if it's part of the lifestyle or sort of part of the expectation of that's what the lifestyle is supposed to be. It's an occupational hazard that's encouraged. Yeah. 
Well, I guess I, I mean, I don't know much about addiction, but I'd imagine it's a combination of boredom and ease of, of getting it. <laughs> well, there's a lot of enablers out there and yeah. it's both encouraged and it's tolerated. And when you're surrounded by people that are also troubled, you don't notice it because yeah. it seems normal. But obviously you went a little too far and they said goodbye to you. I went a little too far, you know, and they called me up one day and they fired me after I did two shows with Metallica, uh, mm -hmm. one in Hawaii and one in Alaska. Um, actually, back to back, one day we flew from Hawaii to Alaska. And I was wow. Like, oh, man. And, uh, but getting fired from a kid like that, I'd imagine the self-confidence suddenly takes quite a hit. <laughs> It was more personal because these guys were my friends. I grew up with them. Yeah. But I, like, within five minutes, I got on the phone with the Bloodhound Gang. And it was like, hey, remember when I wasn't available? It's like, all of a sudden I am. And they're like, okay, you're in. And okay. So that, be, that tour lasted two and a half years. And that was when they had another hit single. It was called um, The Bad Touch. And this, they sold 9 million albums in the first year. Mm -hmm. And their hit single was, it went, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it <laughs> like they do on the Discovery Channel. And it became a huge hit. They became affiliated with um, um, Bam Magara, whatever his name is. Oh, and oh, from that other show, sure. That show, and they, they, they were so big in Europe. They were like... You know, like rock royalty in Europe, mm -hmm. and we were on every single TV show. Um, you know, those, those ones in the B in the in the UK that are top of the pops. Like, yeah, do you do you do the sound for their live performance for the television show too? Yeah, yep. And we did like um, the Conan O'Brien show. Okay, you know, like all those things in. No, not Conan O'Brien. Um, the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and uh, did that, and we played. We, you know, we were mostly in Europe, but we also went to um, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Russia. So at, at that point, were you looking to not necessarily be in a band as a musician, but just continue to make your living as a sound guy touring with these bands? Yeah, I was. I, I finally found my place, and I was totally happy there. Yeah. So then, what happened with the the Bloodhound Gang? I don't think anyone knows who they are anymore. So what That's happened? True. They don't. <laughs> they fizzled out. You know, they 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 were one hit wonders, just like a lot of people are. And I came home from in the year two thousand, uh, a couple of days before Christmas, and uh, returned home from South America. And um, unfortunately, I came home with a ripping alcohol problem. Okay. And I was a mess. And uh, I moved, you know, I, I, my home base was in Allenhurst. And I got home and I was just a terrible mess. And uh, right after that, I think I was riding my bike and I rode past the Saint in Asbury Park. And I didn't even know it existed. That that happened while i was away mm -hmm. but i knew scott stamper from this other place uh the t-birds cafe and i look in and i'm like whoa this is pretty cool he's like you should work here and i was like all right and i started working at the same so what i'm hearing you say is 
chance and falling backwards into shit is essentially how you've lived your entire life. I've been very fortunate. <laughs> like I've been gifted with many opportunities. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. So you essentially became the sound guy for the Saint, and 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 you've One done of them, yeah. yeah. So and you did that for a very long time. Seventeen years. So as you're doing sound for the Saint, you're not touring the world as much anymore, if at all. Was it a hard transition to make? No. Um, there was another thing that happened, though. For I, I was, I, it wasn't 17 years um, consecutively. There was about a two-year period when I moved up to Bergen County, mm -hmm. and I worked for a company um, with the singer of Mucky Pup and his brother. We were a web design company. And uh, they were kind of like rock stars of the web design world. And their clients included the band in sync, mm -hmm. Major League Baseball and stuff like that. So I worked at the Saint for two years. I moved up to North Jersey. And instead of I, then I got heavily into video production and photography. Mm -hmm. And I got sent overseas a bunch of times to do that. And oh, that's uh, fantastic. You know, that company kind of fell apart. I came back down and they moved to Asbury Park. And uh, I lived in Asbury Park for 15 years on First Avenue, right by the Stone Pony. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked at the Saint from that period right up until the pandemic a year ago. So along the way, you also pick up gigs as a guitar player in Defiance Engine. Yep. And, and I guess you reconnect with the X-Men. Was that just to keep you occupied or did you think that might go somewhere as well? I love Defiance Engine. Uh, that was a chance encounter with Reg Hogan at the store that she works at in the, the, uh, the, the you know, the, the collectible store that she has. And I walked in there one day. I didn't even know she was in there. And we had been friends for like 30 years. Sure. And... I just, you know, I was kind of like stagnant. I was, I was happy with my sound career, but I wanted to play guitar again. You had the itch. I had the itch, and I just, she hadn't played in years, like ten years or something like that. Oh, Maybe really? Longer. Okay. And I really, I, I'm not sure about that. She would probably know better than I. But uh, I just said, you know, we should form a band, and we got together and we formed Defiance Engine, and. It was brutal, like that, you know, it was interesting music. It was very mathematical, like it wasn't very... You know, it it wasn't math rock, though I can hear the elements of it, because it was also so, it was so heavy. It was super heavy, and it was very, it was not anything like I'd ever played, but it was really natural to me. Like, I was a big fan of bands like Meshuga. Mm-hmm um like but you know like i i've always i mean there was some radio head in there to me i don't know like i i like bands i like bands that take chances and i i really worked on my guitar sound and i came up with the best guitar sound i ever had when i was in that band and sure. uh i just loved it i loved every minute of it um you know but and i was also still playing with the x-men sure and i you know, um, I left that band. I regret it to this day. Um, I did it around the time that um, I got sober. And I wasn't very, I was a little bit miserable at the time. I wasn't really making the greatest decisions, maybe. Well, I, I think in some ways, I mean, by your own admission, opportunity has found you 
so yeah. many times. But I think the decision, I guess, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that at that point, when you look back, you, you know, you've been in the music scene your entire life. Yeah. There are certain accoutrements to the music scene that are not healthy. And, and at that point, you created the opportunity to say that I can't sustain this lifestyle anymore. Yeah, I think the I think the reason I left too was we weren't doing enough. Like we were playing shows at the Brighton for like three people, and I wanted to I wanted to take I wanted to do something bigger with that band. Like I wanted to like really do something, you know. Sure. Like I I thought we might have had a chance to to take it to a different level, but. You know, it wasn't a realistic thought because they they had a beautiful son. And well, was, we've we've gotten to the age where we can't hop in the van and drive across the country anymore. No, and I'm, I'm <laughs> pretty ridiculous. You know, I, I I'm you know I'm the kind of guy that comes up like, hey kids, let's put on a show. I'm still like that. You know, sure. my dad's got some uh, you know clothes in the basement, and we have a stage in the backyard. Yeah, and you know. It, it, you know, but we're still close friends. Like me and Red are still friends. Me and Jim I, are I would still hope friends. they're they're both they're both wonderfully sweet people. And uh, I got to meet the guitar player who uh, replaced you. He's a very nice guy. Yeah, he was he was one of my guitar idols back in the uh, early Brighton days. Now, what band was he playing in that you uh, liked? Oh my God, uh, his name's Rich Walter. Um, and I cannot remember the name of his That's band. Funny. Well, the, the other nice thing about going to see Defiance Engine so many different times that they that I you know that uh, I guess uh, the, the uh, Reg developed into uh, Nineteen Dirt. Yeah, I love them. I did sound for them at the 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 uh, Saint just before the pandemic. Yeah, as well. that was them. one of the last shows I photographed, but. But and that's even heavier and more throaty. I yeah, it's more stoner rock. Uh, yeah, but they got that screamo thing going. I don't know how he does that with his throat. Yeah. But uh, but I don't think I could be that angry in my mid fifties. You know, there's an angry sound in there, and I just don't feel that angry anymore. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been angry for a long time. But but you know you 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 present an amazing story that you know you you, you explored this lifestyle you, you found a niche but also realized that you couldn't sustain that and and so you know you 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 find a new path and then I guess like two years later all of a sudden we're all locked out of everything yeah and you know the last couple of years of my life have been amazing so i'm i'm going to be 60 years old in may um i still get to do sound um you know the real miracle of my life is that five years ago i became sober mm -hmm. and uh you know since then i if i'm not mistaken my, you found the the woman of your dreams i found the girl of my dreams julie we got married we have a beautiful furry son named Scout. <laughs> we live in a in a magical house in Leisure Village West, fifty five and older community. Oh, that's beautiful, fantastic! Beautiful Manchester, New Jersey. <laughs> we own our own home. Sure. And, uh, now, do you have your guitars? I, I, I people listening wouldn't see it, but they're hung up on the wall. Yeah. Do you have a room for your your uh, your amp and guitar and pedal board? 
Well, my amp, my guitar, and my pedal, my amp, and my pedal board's out in our garage, and I'm about to rebuild my amp and modify it. It's a Fender Hot Rod Deluxe, but I'm going to hot rod the hell out of it. What What's wrong with it? The way it is? No, nothing. But if you're a guy that has one of these, you'll know that the 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 potentiometers on them suck. Oh, okay. So you're going to so fiddle around with them. If you turn it from zero to one. One is about as loud as it gets, and if you keep going, it doesn't get any louder, and it doesn't oh, sound better. And the tone what? control sucks, so I bought this modification. I think it's called a Frommel mod, and you take out the circuit board, and you replace all the potentiometers and capacitors. Do you get that from Stu Mac, or is there a different place that you order your stuff from? I got it online. I don't. I think it was from the guy that made the modification. Sure. So, so I'm going to do that, and behind me, I got... I got my 1984 Strat, which I got uh, a long time ago. I've got a a Vicaro guitar that was made in beautiful Asbury Park, New Jersey. Sure. And I've got two Epiphones hanging up there that I love completely. They're the SGs with the P90 pickup. Yeah, and then I've got Julie's little acoustic guitar and my classical guitar. Oh, that's sweet. So what do you, you know, the world is opening up again. Obviously, things have changed, some for the better, some maybe not for the better. So once everyone gets their two shots and wears their stupid masks and stop bellying about it, what do you see to be the next five years for Hinge and and and, and even sort of your relationship with, with the live music scene? Well, you know, I think I re- thought recently, um, you know, I've got some tinnitus issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, shocking, right? <laughs> I I know the feeling. <laughs> you know, I spent my life playing in metal and punk bands, and then I, you know, spend the rest of my life doing sound at giant shows. And uh, it's amazing how loud that whistle is when you're trying to fall asleep in a quiet room. Oh, it's ridiculous! And uh, <laughs> you know, so I think I I was talking to uh, Julie recently, and you know, I, I think that there's some kind of you know. Um, magic in the universe that brought me back to the Brighton bar. Sure. Um, you know, I think there's something poetic about finishing my, my music career where I started and it feels really good being there with my, my friend, Greg, he's been one of my best friends in my entire life. And I, you know, I got to give Greg credit because I didn't know anybody in the area and he was always cool about me coming to take pictures. He's such a sincere guy about the whole thing. He's a true believer. Yeah. You know, he, good he, guy. He saved the Braden Bar. The Braden Bar would not exist if it wasn't for Greg. And, you know, the Braden's been, been consistently presenting original live music longer than any club on the Jersey Shore. I wonder, I worry sometimes because I'll be there on a Thursday to see some bands and there's like three people. Yeah. Or, you know, and you're like, wow, you know, how does he pay the, you know, how do you pay the rent on three people? I don't know. You know, like, uh, we live in a weird time. You know, there's so many distractions and so many great things you can do at home. You know, we all have home theaters now. You sure, know, but, we... but you have to admit that once once we get through the last part of this pandemic, it's going to be like the roaring 20s. No one's yeah. going to want to stay home. I mean, if some of these clubs that, and, and, you know, you worked at the Saint for so many years and periodically the Saint pops up in the news that they're folding, they're not folding, they, they got a backer, they don't have a backer. If these clubs could just last six more months or so, plus or minus, maybe even a year, 
I, I think if they could last a year, there's there's going to be a mountain of money pouring in because people are ready to get out of the house. Yeah, you know, I, I got to say, like, um, regarding the saint, like my 17 years there, like I had magic experiences at that place. I work with some of my idols, like Tony Levin from the band King Crimson. Yeah, I couldn't go to that show, but I, you know, I, were, I was with there. him a couple of times and. I had some of the most mind-blowingly amazing sound gigs of my life there in that little room. Yeah, how do you and, mic? How do you mic? Is it the uh, Terry Bazio's drums? He's got oh, seventy thousand. Everything. <laughs> uh, he 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 was so um, meticulous about it that he sent a sheet in advance telling you exactly how you were supposed to mix them. Like this drum is going to, you know, you're going to emphasize this freak, you know, from 400 Hertz to six, 600 Hertz. This sure. there's like 48 drums. Yeah. He it has a insane. giant, him and so he had a sub mixer on stage and he sent me a sub mix, but he also, you know, I, I think I used 32 channels for that show. And 30 of them were for the drums. Yeah. And there were, he's like no subwoofers. So there was no low end, no compressors, no gates or anything. Wow. And it actually wasn't a very loud show. If you were there, it was one of the quietest shows I've ever done because it was, he plays orchestral drums now. Mm -hmm. So he's not like the Terry Bozio was with Frank Zappa or missing persons or any of that. He's now playing melodies and full play more melodic. Yeah, so it was sure. it was magic, and it was sold out. It was all guys, you know, yeah, all, all dudes who were into prog rock. And, I was gonna uh, say they were there were a lot of baseball caps and very long straight hair. Yeah, and I was I felt honored. I was like I was in the room with him alone for a bunch of hours. Sure, you know, and I was just like, this is weird. Like I'm hanging out with this legend guy. You is know, is but... he as into Dungeons and Dragons as his audience is? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just I want to say I, I my impression in advance. I thought he was going to be an asshole, but he was one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Sure, sure. No, it, uh, you know, there's no reason not to be nice, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, you know, so you know, I what's going to happen in the future? I, I think mean, Jack, living... you, have, you have to admit you've had a novel's worth of experience. Yeah, for me, I told Julie that I'm going to retire at 65 years old. I think that that's a good year for me, you know, age for me. It's 65 years from now. I think I'll be, I don't want to be the 70 year old guy doing, doing sound. sound for the kids. You know, I think I'll, I'll be ready at 65. Um, I think I'm going to focus my energy on, you know, taking the eth work ethic I had at the Saint, and I'm going to bring it to the Brighton Bar. Sure. Um, and hopefully, you know, if there's anybody out there who wants to learn from an old guy like me, that's where you can find me. And uh, Have you ever thought about teaching at one of those places, those trade schools that teach how to do sound music and uh, mixing and things like that? No, but I've taught a lot of people over the years. Yeah. I like being, yeah, I, I, I think I'm a good, a pretty good teacher, but I'm more, I think I would get bored with that. I think I, I still like the immediacy and the flying by the seat of your pants nature of do, sure. just doing it. So, but I'm always happy to have somebody, you know, 
go on the ride with me and, and pass on what I do, you know, but I'm a little scattered. I think I, I'm a little, uh, how do I explain it? I, I just let it just, I let it rip. Like, you know, like I, I, I a lot comes out of my mouth really quick, as you can tell by this hour and a half. No, it's, months. it's, apt. well, I, I guess the million dollar question, and, and I've asked this of a, of, of a lot of the people and, and very much some of my friends, you have rubbed elbows with internationally known musicians. You've been on the precipice of breaking big and having that, or at least one of those dreams fulfilled. Do you feel like you missed anything? Do you, do you have any like, wow, I could have been moment? No, I love my life just the way it is. It, it, it. I couldn't have planned a better life, especially these last couple of years. Like, uh, I, I, I don't feel my age. I'm 59 right now. I'm about to turn 60. I've had a magic life. I've, I've lived, it's been beyond my wildest imagination. Um, I think I packed three or four lives into one lifetime. Oh, just the traveling alone. It's, it's almost like your nomadic years made you ready for your stay-at-home years yeah and where i'm at right now you know with me and julie and scout right here in our beautiful little home with a fireplace in manchester sure i couldn't be happier and you know my day job um you know nowadays my day job is i'm a software tester and in the weirdest way it's a lot like doing sound i don't know how else to explain it it's but you i think the sense is you probably could have been a fine electrical engineer or a construction engineer. You like to tinker. You like to yeah, I, take I like things puzzles. apart. I like, yeah. I like taking things apart and putting them back together. And that's sort of what I do sure, sure. in a coding kind of way now. That's uh, uh, I, I don't think if people were to just meet you briefly, they'd realize the depth of the experience that you have. And, and there's a few people that I've met that I think should write a book. Uh, Des, uh, Kadena is someone who I think should write a book. I, his absolutely. experiences are absolutely stunning. But you're the man. I mean, just sort of the notes on the road. You know, you, you've. I've thought about it. You know, it, it, there's a lot more to the story than that. You know, a lot of it's ridiculous. And uh, oh, I'm sure you've seen some of the most bizarre behavior. But, but I guess I've, I've had the most some of the most bizarre behavior. <laughs> too. But what's what's nice is. Uh, unlike many of the people that you probably remember and you've talked about that some people didn't make it through, for whatever reason, the universe decided to let you land on your feet and, and the world is a better place for that. Yeah, and, you know, I, I sincerely hope that... Um, I think we're going to be living with the aftermath of the pandemic for a long time. I don't think it's going to go away. No, I think we'll be wearing masks for a long time and maybe get booster shots. And I will say this, um, you know, as far as wearing masks go, we're on the audio here, but uh, we can see each other. And uh, I have really fucked up teeth, man. I hate our American dental system. I cannot afford to fix them. I, you know, there, there was a time in my life when people referred to me as Skeletor, which, you know, whatever, you know, it's like, uh, but I, you know, I, I have dental problems, but I got to tell you, like the last year, like behind the mask, I have never felt more confident out in public, man. Like, <laughs> you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to wear a mask for the rest of my life. Just tell and, everyone you have the flu. 
Yeah, I like that. I think I look a lot better. I, I like the air of mystery that comes with wearing the mask. Well, Jack, I got to tell you, for a guy about to turn 60, I wouldn't have put you a day over 54. Exactly. <laughs> I thought you were like 31 at the oldest. Oh, no, I'm, I'm 56. No you know, I, I understand the ringing in the ears. Um, not so much because I didn't play in a lot of bands because I opted for a family and children and working in education, but, but I also find that depending on the weather, my fingers don't like to move in certain patterns and my knuckles, my knuckles just hurt. And so you, you got to put it down and, you know, you, you rub asper cream all over your hands and hope for the best. But, uh, see, here's the thing, Doug, though, like, you know, I mean, if, 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 I was to wind up interviewing you now, <laughs> like, you know, when I first encountered you, it was mostly through your f- photographs and uh, it must've been hard for you for the past year because your photographs, like I'm telling you, like, first off that your focus on black and white blows my mind, but you were right up there with the greats. I'm like, like Alfred oh, wow. Stiglitz and wow. like all the great photographers from the fifties, the time magazine photographers, the yeah. punk rock photographers. I'm, I'm convinced I was born. I mean, I love my life and I love my family. I was born 15 to 20 years too late. <laughs> if, you were, if you were doing what you did pre-pandemic back when the Beatles were around, yeah, I, you would have been the iconic Beatles yeah, photographer because your photos look like that. They're dramatic and they're... Yeah, and the thing I always tell people about Doug, I always say, the thing that's magic about Doug is he doesn't look at the band most of the half the time. He looks at the, the reaction to the band. Well, I, you know, as a sound guy, I'd imagine you've had this problem that, you know, after a couple of weeks, some of these bands... They start to look the same. They start to sound the same. They're obnoxious in the same way. They smell the same way. It's the crowd I find to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the magic's in the vibe in the crowd. Yeah, and and when you get a good connection, uh, although you know I've I've gotten hurt at a couple of shows, it's been well worth it. But but you're you're. Kind words, uh, Jack, of the, the well, photography. You, you know, I've I, been bored out of my skull for part of the for, – for about six months, I went back through – I mean, I because of the digital medium, you don't have to worry about changing films. So you end up with thousands of images where, you know, 30 years ago, you might only have 100 because yeah. you could just vomit out digital images. Uh, the real skill in photography now is to look at a 1,000 images and pick the three – that captured that moment. You have to be able to distinguish between, wow, I've, I've now taken the same picture 62 times. Yeah. The 63rd picture is better. But interestingly, after I sort of ran out of going through old photographs, I, I started playing the guitar a lot more again. You know, it's, yeah, it's, you're amazing it, too. Oh, thank you. And my kids are a little bit older, you know, uh, they're in their twenties. My youngest is 18. She's in high school. And I've I've had a little bit of free time and and I have to give my wife credit. She she puts up with me on every level. I'm a I'm a quirky guy. I get stuck on these music projects, you know, and and, yeah, and and there could be like, you know, just a little section of a recording that doesn't sound right. And and I'll perseverate over it for days uh, because it's got to be right. But it's been fun. I've been building. Uh, I've been perpetually building a pedal board 
and and I've been thinking that maybe post pandemic I might try to get a couple of fifty six year old guys who can't stand up very well and try to do a one off because the one thing that I I got a chance to play a few times at CBGBs and and apart from like my real life of having getting married and having children which is infinitely more important the fact that I got I, we got paid forty dollars to play. You know, I I paid a I played a paying gig at CBGBs, and that's like a cool thing for me. Yeah. But I I never got to play at Maxwell's. I never played uh, at at some of the other kind of places. I would love to play at a place like the Saint. I would love to be on stage at the House of Independence. I think Jim does a very nice job. I think he Absolutely. designed the sound system, and and so I'm getting a little itch of. One more time, can we can we put something together to put forty minutes of it, something interesting together? Uh, but then my back hurts, and then I sit down. And I say, "Screw that! <laughs> Change the channel. Well, make it thirty minutes. <laughs> 30 <laughs> minutes let me sit down. A lot of Advil. Anyway, Jack, uh, you should write a book. It has been uh, an absolute pleasure to to get the Jack background. Uh, Thanks, Doug. Uh, I could see why Julie enjoys spending time with you. you. You weave a good story, and you got a lot of them. Well, so does she. I, <laughs> I am fortunate to have met Julie. She is, I call her my cloud angel, and uh, she's got a fascinating story unto herself, and um, I couldn't have, I think it's it's my, the thing I most like touched by was meeting her and like forming our little family too, just like you, like, you know, um, that is, it, it's the, this last five years has been the most rewarding five years of my life. That's fantastic. And, you know, it's like, I, I tell my story sometimes in another place where I am involved and, you know, people were like, you did all that, but you're like, this is what you're most proud of. And it is, it's like becoming a responsible adult, with a beautiful wife and a beautiful home and well, things, dog things came and, into focus, you know, you, you, you literally lived essentially a sleeping on the couch, nomadic life for such a long time. It's, it must be nice knowing where to go home to every day. And that's your it space. Is. I've never been happier. It's magic. That's wonderful stuff. Anyway, Jack, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure and it's a, it's a pleasure to know you and to see you happy and all good stuff. So thank you for spending time with us. You too, Doug. And, uh, you know, it's an honor to tell my story to you and, uh, you are a great, um, host. <laughs> thank you. And, uh, you made this really easy. And this is the first time in my life I've ever done this, by the way, <laughs> you'd never know. And I'm glad I saved it all up for you. And, <laughs> uh, you made it enjoyable and, uh, I'm going to be thinking about it long into the evening. I really appreciate it. It was an honor and a pleasure. Pleasure was mine. <laughs>